If you want to get rid of all the ads, just choose the David McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts and you'll hear us without any clutter or noise or ads. Lovely, John. Beautiful. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. It is an auspicious week in Ireland. Joe Biden arrives in the country, the President of the United States, one of the most pro-Irish... He's coming home. He's coming home, <laughs> exactly, to the Cooley Peninsula and Ballina, and Ballina. That's it. But uh, we're going to talk today about a notion of global Irishness. Now, I'm going to talk about it through the prism of soft power, economic soft power. We're also going to link, if you're a regular listener, last week's podcast on Israel, last year's podcast on Inish Manjo. Yeah. That's right. And this podcast on art. And it's all against the background of the Good Friday Agreement, which was signed 25 years ago and really changed the country, John. And do you remember that night of the Good Friday Agreement? No, but you're actually telling me this is, this is all, <laughs> it's all coming, tell me. In London, we had a flat up in uh, Finsbury Park. I remember that flat. And yourself and Shan came in. I don't know who else is there. Came around for dinner and we drank Serbian wine that you brought? Yes, I had just come back from Serbia. I had just come back from Serbia. Now, the thing about Serbia is a strange place, but they have this wine called Vranac, right? And Vranac is a grape, a Serbian grape. It's a grape and it's very, very heavy. That's what I remember of it. It's really, really heavy. And and I also remember (laughs) the certain thing about wine, right, that sometimes it tastes really nice in the country, that you're drinking it in, yeah, and it doesn't yeah. travel so well. And I remember the first time I tasted Vranats. There is, if anybody out there knows <laughs> Belgrade, there is a bizarre, bizarre, rather dark place called the Serbian Writers Club. The Serbian Writers Club is a club in Belgrade. Right. Dark, underground place, okay? Mm. Now, the reason it is dark is because in the 1980s, a lot of the Serbian nationalism was cultivated by intellectuals, interestingly. Nationalism in Serbia didn't come from the man on the street. Right. It came from this intellectual class. Okay, okay right. That kind of fed Milosevic all these ideas mm. of 
Serbian nationalism. You know, Moncello Krajicek and all these people, poets, right? Poets were feeding him this stuff and intellectuals and playwrights and all this stuff, right? And the place they used to hang out is the Serbian Writers Club. Right. And I was sent to, because, you know, last week's podcast been sent to Israel. I was also yeah. sent to Serbia. I was sent to all yeah, these yeah, weird places that. in this yeah, job, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I arrived in with a Serbian mate of mine and it was like going into sort of a film noir. It was like, you imagine the yeah. classic film noir and everyone's sitting there and they're smoking, they're talking politics and all that. And Drinking Vran- this fine. And Vranats was the drink. Right. And I said, okay, well, let's bring loads of that back to London. And then I inflicted, <laughs> you and I inflicted it, it on you. <laughs> you That's why the night is really hazy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where was I the night the good friend? <laughs> but that was brilliant because we, yeah, we celebrated that all night. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was an amazing thing. And, and of course for, for Shan, and not so much for me, but for Shan, it was a really big, big deal, you know? You know, but she's brought up like all of her generation in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, you know, born in the Troubles and yeah. lived all through the Troubles. Yeah, that was yeah, that yeah. was that was their background noise. So much so that you know their, their preferred choice of school. Sean wanted to go into Belfast for school, but they couldn't go in because it was too dangerous. They had to go to the local school. All the, there was lots and lots of things that you forget were, mm. you know, inflicted upon Northerners by the Troubles. And you know, the amazing thing is like now our, our little kids, I mean, they're the, you know, our kids are the Good Friday Agreement incarnate. Yes, yeah, they are. Two yeah, little absolutely. mongrels, you know, what are we? You know? And actually, like, we're going up to the north today, this afternoon. Yeah. And they'll be very happy up the north and chit-chatting away, you know, with their cousins they and all that. They slot right in. Yeah. They slot right in and then back down here, they slot right in. So I actually think the future, the future of Ireland should be a certain proportion of Irish people mm. need to sleep with each other. Right? Yes. Okay. And have little kids. I'm all up for that. Have little kids, exactly. And then within two or three generations, it's all over. Yeah. But I mean, I think one of the dilemmas now at the North, and this is really still the case, is that even after a quarter of a century, John, schools are not integrated. Schools are still segregated. So Catholic kids go to Catholic schools, Protestant kids go to Protestant schools. And that's where you're formed. You're formed yeah. in school. You know, your sense of the other, your sense of the alien, your sense of the strange. You know, if those kids were in school together, Absolutely. Very, very, of course. Quickly, very quickly it would, I'm not saying sectarian would disappear, but I'd say it would, it would be regarded as ridiculous, mm. the idea that you would actually separate kids as they grow up. And what's interesting in Northern Ireland is that when people start working, they're all working together. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the interesting well, that's, thing. That's very true. But but the but rawness the of it uh, over the years, you know, yeah. even though the Good Friday Agreement was a, a huge, huge milestone. Amazing. I remember the feeling, I remember that night actually quite well. Better than even me. Even though it was a bit hazy. <laughs> but, but I remember there was, there was a lightness. There oh, was yeah. a kind of a, yeah, yeah, a relief. Yeah. But then you had over the last 25 years in Northern Ireland, you also had, you know, more recently you had the kind of opening of old wounds through Brexit. Yeah, uh, and prior to that, you had the executive, the local government falling apart, and then yeah, getting back yeah, yeah. together, and all. So it, it has been a no, very difficult twenty-five years. But, at the but same obviously, time. The, you know, the, the, the absolutely essential message from this podcast is snogger unionist. <laughs> snogger unionist. That's the way it goes. Snogger, snogger unionist today. Snogger prod today. All will be fine, and down the road, everything will be fine. This is the today McQueen's podcast message. <laughs> Unbelievably well thought out, but in actual fact, it is because humans. What I want to talk about is the impact of human memory on economics. Mm. That's what this podcast right. is going to yeah, be about. Yeah, yeah. It's not something you hear about all the time, but it's actually something that I believe is unbelievably important, which is that. If you regard humans, us, this personality, consciousness, right? Yeah. As nothing more 
than a collection of memories. Yeah. As you get older, that's who you are. You memorize and you say, I was there at this stage. You're talking about the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, it defines you. You Or it defines you, right? Now, it has always intrigued me as to why in Ireland we do not do something I learned in Israel. I'm going to tell you about that in a Mm. second. But do you remember this time last year we were in Inishman? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Doing the podcast from Inishman, right? (laughs) Again... By the way, if you are feeling sporty, the Inish Man, Iron Man. The Inish Iron Man. The Inish Iron Man is on the last weekend of April. And if you fancy it, signing up, just go on to koloshtenaveown.ie. Koloshtenaveown is the website. It is the school down there on Inish Man. And sign up and it's great crack. Do you need to spell that? C-O-L-A-I-S-T-E-N-A-O-I-M-H-E-O-I-N. Sean McDavish. I'll actually tell you a story about being the guest. Top of the class, David. Top of the class. Dahi. Dahi. When we were in Irish college, I'll tell you the story about John Davis. John and I were in Irish college in West Cork many, many years ago. And John had, we were from the Dunleary Gaeltacht, which you know is a very, very inspiring part of the Gaeltacht. It's a hotbed. Hotbed of Irish language uh, enthusiasm. And John and I were, I think, at age 12 or 13 or something. And we were all in a poor, oh, God bless her, Bunny Breen. The Bunny Breen. Bunny yeah, Breen, yeah. and she took us all in, right? And we were all these messers from Monkstown. And, of course, John and I are sitting there one night acting the maggot and shouting and roaring and listening to music. And the Kigara comes in. And the Kigara was the inspector, all right? And the Kigara comes in. And it was like Shadow of a Gunman. If you remember Shadow of a Gunman, yeah. right? And in he comes, in he comes, Right. By the way, a, a, a play, Shadow of Gunman, if, you, if you're interested, it's Sean O'Casey's play. So in comes the gunman, the Kigara, and he roars at us. And he looks at John, he looks at me, and he roars at John. He's got us out of Dutch. And John panics, he goes, Truck a tree, park, Windsor, Bolyan, Bolyan, For those of you who can speak <laughs> Irish, it's not the right answer. <laughs> That's my address. <laughs> so John He's was asked. A life John was asked his name, and he fucking spluttered out his address. <laughs> Panicked. That was the extent yeah, of the Irish language yeah. achievement. Anyway, but the point was, John, <laughs> what English man does, right? You bring, you bring the kids. Oh my God! I just have to chills down my spine now. <laughs> I'm reliving that moment. Yeah, anyway. yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, I used to do his echo for him. Still doing his echo for him. <laughs> anyway. anyway, anyway, anyway. It was never languages in general were never a strong yeah, point. Yeah, for yeah. Me. and in fairness, they were never they were never taught really properly either. But the idea of the Gaeltacht was and mm-hmm. is still right to infuse the kids with a sense of Irishness, a sense of the place, a sense of the culture, a deeper sense of Irishness, a sense of this is where we're from. And I've always found that really fascinating because as we're doing now in this podcast, what we're talking about, we are our memories. These are the things we all remember. Yeah. And you know, when, when I ask you, or even if you're listening now, imagine yourself as your 13-year-old self, 14-year-old Who were you? Who were you hanging out with? What were you doing? These memories are absolutely central to yeah, the person yeah. you become over many, many years. Now, here is where we switch into a bit of economics, right? Many years later, after John and I were in the Gale Talk, as we talked about last week, I was in Israel working. And my old boss said to me something fascinating. He said to me, he was a guy called Amos Rubin, who passed away about two years ago, really clever, beautiful man, beautiful, beautiful mm. person. And he said to me, you know, 
what do you guys do with the Irish tribe abroad? And I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, every time I travel, I go to New York, I go to London, I go all over the place. So I'm doing deals. He was a business guy, really clever yeah, yeah, entrepreneur. Yeah. He said, typically at the end of the deal, there's me. Mm. He was basically, there's a couple of Jews. And he says, usually there's a couple of Irish people on the far side. <laughs> there's yeah, an yeah. Irish guy at the far side, Irish American, Irish Canadian, Irish Australian. And we get chatting and we, you know, et cetera. And he says, what do you do with these people? And I said, how do you What's mean? What do you do with them? He said, he said, this is your best resource. Your people are your best resource. Right, okay? okay. He said, we in Israel would be nothing without the Jewish people abroad. Mm. He said, we would be nothing. We'd be gone, right? He said, they are our lifeline to the world, right? He said, you guys have this amazing network. Your, your network is everywhere, yeah, right? There's yeah. Irish people everywhere. What do you do with them? I.e., how do you make them feel Irish? This always struck me. He said, this other great expression. Mm. He said, like, when I look at you, he says, you're like us. You know, you've got this network. You're like Jewish. You're the Jews who booze. <laughs> <laughs> I thought was the best description of Irish people. The Jews who booze, right? Now imagine this, right? What they do in Israel is exactly what we do in the Geltat. Right. The Israelis bring Jewish kids from around the world and they bring them to Israel for two or three weeks every summer, right? Yeah. Exactly as we went to the Gale Tuck, to, mm. to infuse them with a sense of, you know, your people are from Jerusalem. This is where you're from, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, those Jewish kids go back out into the world and they are forever wedded to Israel because the like, memories are created. Th these are when they're teenagers. When like, they're teenagers. Really right? impressionable age. Exactly, really impressionable age. Yeah. Now, it's really interesting. And I was really fascinated by this. Mm. And they have this thing called birthright. Now, it's, it's very, very controversial, mm. right? Because every time you put... 10 Jewish people in, 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 in the land. Yeah. What do you do with the Palestinian people? Yeah, yeah right? exactly, exactly. But we don't have Palestinians. And also this, 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 this friend of mine, I asked her, and she was the head of the finance department in, in Israel, and she said, a woman called Sipi Galyam, and I said, well, how, what do you do with these kids when they arrive? She just laughed. She said, basically, they come, they have a really good time. You know, Jewish people from Canada or America yeah. or England, <laughs> they have their first little affair, their little flings, right? Yeah, she yeah, says, yeah. you know, with, and they go back and their world is formed. Right, it's like the, us in Irish college. Precisely, <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like the Kaylee, the Kaylee yeah. in Irish college, right? Now, so I've always thought, think about Ireland. We have the largest diaspora in the world per head of our own local population. Yes, yeah, yeah. The Irish Americans. So Joe Biden, go back to Joe Biden. Mm. He's part of the forty million people in America who regard themselves as Irish. Okay, forty million. 40 million. There are ten million Australians, Aussies describe themselves as Irish. There's 4.6 million Canadians, right? Right. Think about this, what's right? A, what's that as a percentage? The Canadians, but there's about 30 million Canadians, so it's 12% of Canada, 13%. Jesus. Right, okay. It's huge, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's a quarter of Aussies, 25% of all Aussies, yeah. right? In the United States, it's a, it's a huge proportion. You know, if you think of the United States, 300 million, so 40 million, that's about 10%, a little bit yeah, over 10%. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking this massive, massive resource, right? They are well-educated, they are clever. They are well-traveled. They are unbelievably pro-Ireland, like mm. Joe Biden. They are emotionally part of our country. Their kids tell them they're Irish. They go to maybe Catholic schools, typically. They go to mass, to all these sort of links to Ireland. They're the, the Irish-Americans I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, the Ulster, the Ulster men should figure out that the Ulster Scots are even a bigger population 
Yeah. They're, they're the hillbillies. The hillbillies, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you know the story. That's yes. The hillbillies are, are followers of King Billy from the hills, from Appalachia. Yeah. They used to come into the town. And the local, <laughs> the local sort of, you know, the way America was divided amongst the Protestants between Presbyterian, sort of roundheads and cavaliers. Yes. Right? Yes. So yeah, the yeah. roundheads in, are the Puritans, and they were the Presbyterians, they were poor farmers, and they went into the American military in big stuff around Kentucky and all these places, right? Right. And of course, cavaliers were the more upper class, swanky Anglican. This is before we arrived right. to cause havoc in the 19, in the 1830s, right? It's like, ah, here we go. There's a few gate crashers coming in from Galway and Donegal and these places. But before we arrived in America, there was always this conflict. And of course, it was the cavaliers who called them hillbillies. The right, followers okay. of King Billy from the Appalachian Hills. And they'd yeah. come in on the 12th of July and start banging their drums. And yeah, that's where yeah. the hillbillies the come Glorious from. 12th. Glorious 12th, absolutely. <laughs> so, but I come back to my point, right? Why don't we... Think about soft power. Why don't we think of Ireland as a massive Gaeltacht? And by this, I mean, think of Ireland as the recharging battery for the Irishness of all these people. So explain this to me, because what would be the overall goal okay. and purpose so, of so, this? So the overall idea would be, if you look at a lot of the stuff today about Irish America, mm. there is a general sense that Irish America as the Irish become much more suburban, much less urban in the United States, as they become more American, yes. okay, they're yeah, less yeah. hyphenated, that that sense of Irish America will gradually begin to dissipate. Yeah. Because what has been very unusual amongst the Irish in America is although we've been there for a long time, we've kept this hybrid identity. Yes. Right? And it's very, very strong. Yeah. But as time passes, it becomes less and less strong, right? So the idea would be the following. Do like the Israelis do, which is... Give them the opportunity to come here. They're kids, they're grandkids. Mm. So for two or three weeks every summer, think about every school in Ireland is empty in the summer. That's true. Every That's single true. school, yeah, yeah. right? So there's a huge unused infrastructure for children here. Mm. Huge unused infrastructure. Do exactly as we do for the Gaeltacht. Bring them over, put them up in Irish families yeah. for two or three weeks. Give them a program, like take them up to Kilmacud Croaks. Get them to play yeah, GAA, yeah. get them to play hurling, take them down the West, give them to Dublin. Give them a couple of fuckle. Give, give, of fuckle, give them a field to drink flagons in. Or, you know, <laughs> great Irish cultural things like drinking flagons and open fields and bush shelters and things like that. And then you send them back to America. Right? Yeah. Then you create an Ireland in their heads. It's yeah. the idea of soft power, that they are therefore always wedded to us. Their memories are Irish, right? Do you remember that summer we were in Galway? Mm, do you mm. remember that summer we were in Dublin? Do you remember that summer, right? And what you do is you counteract the waning of Irish America by giving them something. So I've always thought, you know, we know what the Irish Americans give us. They give us foreign direct investment. Yeah. When the Belfast Agreement was on the skids, it was Irish America came in and, and sell, held it. When Joe Biden's coming here this week, the influence of Irish America is huge. We know what they give us. What do we give them? What do we actually give them? Nothing. We don't, it's, it, is like, it is like a dysfunctional- Are they looking for something? Not, yes. They're looking for home. They're right. looking for okay. a yearning. They're looking for something spiritual and cultural that's much deeper. You know, that's why when the Irish-Americans, like, for, I'll give you a great statistic, right? Mm. Forget the Americans for a second. Our friends over across the water in Britain, right? Yeah. Now think about this. There are six million English people, six million English people with one Irish grandparent. 
That means there are more English people with Irish grandparents than there are Irish people with Irish grandparents. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's, that's quite a statistic, that's actually, kind isn't it? Of bonkers. Yeah. That Jesus, is kind yeah. of bonkers, right? There are more people in England with an Irish grandparent than there are people in Ireland with an Irish grandparent. Why? Because half a million Irish people emigrated in 1950 to England alone. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. their kids and their grandkids, right? Yeah. Well, it's like my brother's over there. Yeah, brother. and he's got, he's got kids. And, they, and they'd be really having to pull on the, the green jersey when the rugby match is on, for instance. And Ireland are playing England. They're pulling on the green jersey. Precisely, right? Yeah. And, and as you know, I've, I have the weakness for following the Republic. Yes. As I tell you, I go to the Republic, take you like Carlsberg to places that other beers don't reach. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And there you meet all all the you know, yeah. Birmingham Irish, the Manchester Irish, you know, all that sort of stuff. So my point is, what do we give them? They give us their heart and soul. They give us their emotion. And everybody's looking for identity in this very bizarre, globalised, cosmopolitan world. Identity is becoming more critical to people's sense of themselves. We have an enormous resource, which is not a million, which is not tens Tens of millions of people around the world feel Irish, right? We are, as a nation, the Department of Foreign Affairs, or whoever thinks about this stuff, right? Actively saying, oh, it's kind of waning, but what can we do? You know, Mm. it's demographics, it's history. No, you've got to actively protect this. And the reason you'd actively protect this is because soft power is the power of the future. Soft power is the power of small countries. So small countries have always been terrorised by what I would call the tyranny of size. Mm. So when you're small, you don't get to be at the table. And typically, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? You know, somebody's going to do your bidding. So how do you expand the Irishness of the Irish tribe? So you get them on your side and you make that connection between them and us more real than just St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. What you do is you bring their kids over you give them a great time. You say, yes, you are part of the tribe. And the tribe is big and it's different and it's black and it's white and it's all now different colours. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it is a tribe. And the connection is the country. And the connection would be four or five generations ago. But as long as you feel that, we respect that. And you bring them over here and they have the crack, right? And they have these teenage memories now, you imagine that person goes out then into their life and whatever, but there's a tiny little corner of their brain, a yeah. tiny little corner of themselves has reinforced their Irishness. And then when these people are making kind of 50-50 decisions as they get older about life and investing and companies, some of those 50-50 decisions will go our way. Not because we are any better, but because we own, we have colonized a little part of their identity. Yeah, yeah. That's the key. Mark, you know, this is, I really like this idea and I love the, the Gale Talk element to this and where it might lead to with, with soft power. But let's have a chat about the logistics of doing this. Uh, you're always, it's always, it's like, I'm, uh, you've got to be practical, Mark. this works is I'm the dreamer, John's the pragmatic person. This is how this works. <laughs> we'll talk about that after this. Okay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So, Mac, 40 million Americans. Yeah, just take the Americans. Yeah, just take the Americans. Or it's 6 million in the UK or 10 million Australians, whatever. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people. How would something like this work from a logistical perspective? And, you know, without being boring about it, you know, but somebody needs to be practical and think about the practicality. Well, well, I mean, you, for example, are very involved in and know a lot more than I do about the GAA. Mm -hmm. So you take the GAA as an organization, as an institution, right? It's very, very deep in every community in this country. Very, very deep. It has amazing infrastructure in every village. It is also very plugged into this idea of the global tribe. So yeah. there's GAA clubs all around the world. And growing, actually. Yeah, and, and what growing, always happens yeah. to me when I do a paid gig anywhere around the world yeah. and it's on Twitter, the local GAA club brings me up on Twitter or something says, you do us, do us, you know, a whip round gig for the GAA. Yeah. But that's grand and I'm really happy to do so. Bangkok, Bangkok, GA, Taiwan, Uganda. Dubai, everything, right? So, but, but they're plugged into this idea, yeah, right? Yeah. You have also the entire infrastructure of the Department of Education. The entire infrastructure of the Department of Education is free all summer. Mm. Okay. Every single school is empty. So imagine GAA clubs, schools, right? And then what you would do is you would also try and generate community-based ideas. So you're appealing to people a little bit like, for example, how people around here take in Spanish students, right? So you basically say, take in a student for the summer or for four or five weeks, we'll pay you. And they get steeped in Irish culture. Mm. I'm not too sure the Spanish students, I remember uh, Javi Alonso, do you remember the football player? Yeah. He learned his Irish and Kel or his English and Kells. And he speaks every and every day on Lao. Yeah, exactly. You know, he does. It's brilliant. That's fantastic. Yeah, he learned it in Kells. Anyway, so that would be the idea. So you build it up. So many years ago, I got involved with the Department of Foreign Affairs, this idea I had. It kind of comes from this idea here of the Global Irish Forum, That's which came right. to pass. Yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yourself and John Reynolds. It was, yeah, well, we went in, was, I asked John, John, who who passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago, mm. but people in Ireland will know him as the very, very brilliant festival entrepreneur set up Electric Picnic and yeah. set up Forbidden Fruit and Electric yeah. Picnic, brought Leonard Cohen over here, brilliant person. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the idea would be to, to create 
some sort of festival for Irishness. And I we pitched it to the Department of Foreign Affairs. And then it became the Global Irish Forum, which I kind of hosted for the first couple of years. And yes, now it's kind yeah, of yeah. gone on. It's, it's, it's something else now. I can't even remember what it is, but I yeah. think it's called the Global Irish... It, not global. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. but it's it's gone all corporatey, is it? It's a little bit too corporatey for my liking. I, I I would I would think that that all these ideas must be organic. They must be bottom up. Yeah, to make them work. But the idea would be take over maybe a thousand American kids first, five thousand American kids, right? And and use American schools as your recruiting agency. Mm. You could do it online. You know, you know, there could be like a Tinder for Irishness. Yes. <laughs> Swipe left if you're a baddie. <laughs> Swipe right. Okay. But I mean, there's many, many ways of doing it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea would be to come back to the notion that Irishness is a cultural resource, but it's also an economic resource. Mm. And it's a way of fusing the two together inside the memory of the person to just make them a little bit closer. And I see I see this as giving back to Irish yeah. because they have given us so much. And there's an element of, and we spoke before about cathedral thinking, that mm. kind of long-term exactly. thinking. And it's exactly. building, instead of physical structures, it's building a perception. You're building a, castles in the mind. Castle. Oh. <laughs> castles in the mind. Well, actually, Cathedrals in the mind. Answer me this then. There's a huge... Yes, okay, Batman. We said, we said 40 million Irish Americans. Yeah. But I don't know what the figure is, but there's a huge number of German Americans. Americans yes. with, with German heritage. How come they don't feel as German and they're more subsumed into American culture? Yeah, it's very interesting. The first bizarre difference between German and Irish. So mm. the I'm just speaking German, for example. No, so very interestingly... The vast, vast, vast majority of German immigrants in the United States are Catholic, which is in contrast to the country. So they came from yeah. Western Germany. Yeah. There's also a large Palatine and, and sort of Protestant sect Germans who also came, who were kicked out in the Thirty Years' War, right? right. But, but the majority came from West Germany. And when they arrived in America at the same time as we did in the 40s, 1840s, 50s, 60s, all that yeah. period, the... No, nothings were also anti-German as well as anti-Irish. Right. Now, what happened is the Irish had a very bizarre pattern of settlement in America. They came from extremely rural areas, but they became very urban very quickly. Mm. The Germans came from rural areas, but they became rural. They became American farmers. They went to the okay. Midwest, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Irish congregated in cities, in ghettos, and they became a very coherent political force. So straight away, the Irish experience in America is bizarrely urban as mm. opposed to mainly rural. Right, the American gotcha. German experience is mainly rural. Okay. Mm. So straight away when you're rural, you're you're disparate. Yeah. You become much more likely to be interested in the farming community and farming issues, mm. which is why the populist movements from around Kansas and all those places in the 1890s were largely led by Germans. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Other thing. What did the Germans bring to America? Beer. Yes. So prohibition yes, was an anti-Irish, anti-German movement from Protestant wasps who were teetotalers. This is a fascinating right. sidebar. There was all these cultural wars going on at the time, but what really did it for the Germans was the First World War. So the First World War, Germany became the enemy of America. Yeah. And the Germans had to choose. And they hid their Germans 
So for many, many years before the First World War, the Germans were a mass. For example, there was a time when German was going to be the first language of America. There were so many really? German-speaking immigrants. Wow. Right? That yeah, is yeah. amazing, right? But the First World War did it for the Germans because Germany was the enemy. And German Americans disappeared into the firmament of American, and of course, the maybe the most famous one is Eisenhower. Yeah. You know, that, that name ain't coming from anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, except yeah. Germany. Yeah, true, true. So the, the most American general who mm. conquered Germany was German. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about it, right? So that's what happens. So the Irish, the Italians, and the Jews end up being very urban in the United States. I'm so very political. I mean, you, very political. You, you look at the profile of American politics and the number of the, the Mitch McConnells and the, the, you know, the Bidens and the Kentons. The McCarthys and all, and all yeah, these guys. People that we don't sometimes like. <laughs> yes. Well, we digress, John. But Do that's it, what happens. It, but if to come back to our point, right, which is that when you think of the power of countries, you think of muscular hard power like the power that Putin has. Yeah. And now you realize that's no power because hard power is about the power of armies and size and terror. Mm. You know, it's physical power. We're, yeah. we're the big guy in the, in the, in, we're the bully in the playground. We're going to be the big guy. Soft power is much more enduring. Soft power is the power of the imagination. It's the power of advertising. It's the power of creativity. It's getting inside people's heads and you reside in people's heads. When you think of American power in the 1950s and 60s, was it nuclear power or was it rock and roll? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah. Was it the American army or was it Hollywood? You know, very, very different. English power. English power now is music, is culture. Yeah. I think the most significant power that England has at the moment is the premiership. The yeah. football. yeah. Yeah. The football brings it's overtaken all of the other big. But the football brings it's, it's overtaken, but it brings hundreds of millions of people to weird parts of England every Saturday afternoon. Yeah. So you talk about Bangkok. Yeah. There are millions of people sitting in Bangkok talking about Upton Park. Yeah. Talking about going to, you know, West Bromwich Albion, whatever yeah. they play, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Or go to Newcastle. The soft power of Britain is the power of Gary Lineker, which is why they're so scared of him. Gary Lineker is English soft power, right? And in the past, there used to be this thing called British sea power, which was this idea that they yeah. rule the waves. Where Britain is strong now is inside the imaginations of hundreds of millions, even billions of football fans. That's where its power is. And what I'm talking about is Irish soft power. Get into their heads, make them a little bit Irish, bring them back here, let them have memories, let them have their first little fling, Irish boys, Irish girls, all that sort of thing, mm. you know? And what you're creating is the network. If you think about economics, there's two ways of thinking about economics. There's vertical economics and vertical hierarchies. Yeah. And then there's this idea of networks, right? That the network exists, you have a node, and it's a willing bottom-up network that gels people together. And it's all based on what you would call experiences, the experience economy. And I think when we look at Joe Biden here this week, there is an open goal that we are missing. And it's reimagining Ireland for the 21st century. We know what Ireland was like in the 20th century. It's called the Good Friday Agreement, mm. right? It's called the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. That was the project, right? Yeah. It was division. It was partition. It was coming to terms with hundreds of years of colonialism. How do we figure that out? I think we figured it out. Now the question is, how do you position the country for the 21st century? And you position the country for the 21st century 
inside the heads of the children and grandchildren of the 20th and 19th century. And you make this entire demographic arc between all the generations. And you do this by bringing them home. It's pretty simple.